gosh, we've never had a service that I can embarrass so many people um, in one service. Did we want to clap for the newly engaged people again? Because I... <laughs> oh, love it, love it. You guys are like, man, she's got too many announcements. I'm never telling her anything ever again. Okay. <laughs> well, good morning. Uh, Karen told me this morning, she said, I'm a little nervous. You don't have any props up here. And <laughs> I was like, man, I don't. I have some, like, lipstick in my pocket. Uh, that's about it, and that actually doesn't tie into anything we're going to talk about except for what's on my lips right now. Um, but I wanted to start with the fact that but is a transformational word. Uh, but is a transformational word, and not just the ones that are in your genes, okay? Uh, but is an incredibly changing word. Uh, you know, statements like, I thought I was going to win dominoes against my roommates. But then Valerie cheated, um, those kinds of statements. Um, she literally refused to write my score down, just so we're clear. What kind of pastor we're ordaining? Um, <laughs> you know, I thought that I was going to do this, but I got distracted, you know? And then we have more serious ones. I thought that we were here, but we're not. You know, I thought that we were going to have a baby girl, but then... Surprise! You know, I thought that we were going to be together forever, but then it wasn't true. I thought that I raised them better than this. I thought that I knew them better than this, but I don't. I thought I was one place. I thought I wasn't hurting anymore, but then I couldn't stop crying. I thought that I was here, but then I wasn't. See, but is a very transforma transformational word. And there are lives in this room and in this book that I have that lives that were completely transformed by the word but. I was doing this, but Jesus came into my life. So if you're in this room and you think maybe that you are too far gone, that your situation is too huge, that you are too lost, that you are too confused, that you are too frustrated, that you are too fragile, that you're too weird. This sermon series is for you. The big butts of the Bible. We're going to be looking at the before and after nature of Jesus. And what a better time to do that than at, uh, I almost said Christmas, um, than Easter. So um, I like to pray before we start each and every series. So would you pray with me? Father God, we are excited, Lord, for what you are going to do during this Easter season. Lord, I'm excited for the new faces that are going to be brought into this building just simply because that it's Easter. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see your transformational power. God, that even if we find ourselves in a hopeless situation, we know that you change it in just one word. God, we love you so much, and we are excited to embark on this journey with you. Would you anoint it and set it apart? In Jesus' name, amen. So, have you ever been looking for something and it's right in front of your face? Um, I do this a lot, uh, probably a little bit more than I'd like to admit. Uh, when you're talking to your friend on the phone, complaining that you can't find your phone. Yeah, 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 we've all done it. Um, 
It's when you turn your car radio down so you can find where you're going. <laughs> like, oh, it's when you walk out into the parking lot and you can't find your car only to find that it's exactly where you left it. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, it's these moments when things are right in front of our faces and somehow we don't see it. And honestly, if we're being honest, there is a sort of blindness in, the, in life in general that has nothing to do with vision. You know, it has to do with distractions. <laughs> it has to do with confusion. It has to do with emotions and assumptions. And today we're going to look at a man whose life was ridden with physical blindness. But actually, interestingly enough, he's the one that sees the clearest of anybody in today's story. So turn with me to John chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 1. It says, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? And it was not because of either of the sins of his parents or his. Jesus answered, this happened so the power of God could be seen in him. Now the first people to talk in this whole story are the disciples. And they look at this man who was born blind and they say to him, okay, whose fault is it? Uh, was it the boy's fault that he was born blind? Like, what sins did he commit? Which implies, like, that he was committing sins in the womb, which I think is very strange. Um, some pregnant ladies might suggest that that might be true. Um, but <laughs> they say, well, what sins did he commit? Or what sins did his parents commit? And in doing this, they reveal something about their nature and their understanding of God. That somehow, somebody did bad, so this had to happen. Listen, the disciples, they had religious blindness. And religious blindness is when you have an idea of God that no matter what is in front of you, you believe about God that has been, it probably hasn't been formed by scripture or testimony, but purely on what you think you have figured out about him, uh, on the box that you have put him in. And he sees this man who is born blind, and they say, Jesus, what terrible thing did he do? Jesus, what terrible thing did his parents do? What did he deserve, what did he do to deserve this punishment? And the disciples, they reveal an assumption about God that they have that is much like karma. You do bad, you get bad. You do good, you get good. And this is a view that is held widely around our world today. Uh, that if you do good things, God will reward you. But if you do bad things, God's going to reward that too. And this isn't who God is, but it's a very popular view of today. I have a picture uh, from Hurricane Katrina. Um, and when Hurricane Katrina happened, it killed 1,833 people. The town was completely devastated. And the day after, a TV preacher came on and said this was clearly God's judgment on New Orleans that God saw that they were bad, and so they got bad. Another thing that happened, the earthquake in Haiti 
killed 230,000 people. Next, the next day, preachers poured in, saying that this was God's judgment on the nation of Haiti. Something a little closer to home, uh, March 2nd, 2012, 70 tornadoes touched down in the Midwest. 70. And it took the lives of 38 people. And a very popular preacher that is very well known, he posted pictures of the tornadoes coming down and he said that they were the fingers of God scraping judgment on earth. This is religious blindness. Don't get me wrong, there are times in scripture where God talks and he says that he controls the weather. And there are times that God says that he hates sin. But this is what happens when we take one verse, one story completely out of context. And we see a situation that's difficult. And we decide, this is the conclusion that I'm comfortable with. And the disciples that day, they realized this is difficult to look at. So this is the conclusion that I'm comfortable with. See, religious blindness thinks that it has mastered God. It thinks that he, he has him all figured out. And that God will play according to his rules and according to his understandings. And conveniently enough, usually our rules and our understanding and our box, they fit perfectly into our preferences. <laughs> And it says that God is going to work this way. And back to the story, the disciples ask, who sinned? Assuming that God was punishing this child or his parents. And Jesus goes and he completely dismantles this thought about Jesus, this thought about God. Verse 6, then he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud over the man's eyes. So like, that's kind of gross, but like, imagine that. He spits on the ground, and he makes mud, and he spreads it across the eyes of this man. And it, he told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. So he gets mud on his eyes, and he goes and he washes himself in the pool of scent, and he comes back and he can see. Now, a lot of us think that the most important part of this story is that there was a blind man who is no longer blind. But actually the most part, important part of this story is much more subtle than that. It happens right after God puts the mud on his eyes. It says, wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. And then our translations put in parentheses, Siloam means what? Scent. And sent is all over in John. He always is sending people somewhere. Like, <laughs> sent this, sent that, God sends you, God, he sends us, he sent me, all those things. But one of the most well-known verses in, is in John 17, verse 16. It says, they are not of the world, even as I am of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into this world, I have sent you, or sent them into the world. Notice, he is sending disciples out into the world. And then there's this weird word that he uses, sanctify. And he says, sanctify them and send them out. And sanctify can mean a couple different things. It can mean set apart. It can mean holy, 
and anointed, but also it can mean washed. And so this man, Jesus looks at him and he says, go sanctify yourself in the pool of what? Sent. Listen, this moment is not just of physical healing. This is a moment of his sanctification and of his commissioning. The disciples that day did not just see a healing take place. They saw a man be sent out as a disciple of Jesus. Who sinned? And it's as if Jesus says, nobody sinned. And just for saying that, I'm going to anoint him and I'm going to send him out. (laughs) You know, just for that, let's see what he can do. And he says, no, 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 no. My God is not a God of punishment, but he is a God of healing. He says, just watch this. And he cleanses him and he makes him be able to see again. And God uses, in this moment, he uses the least likely of people for the most holy purposes. The least likely of people for the most holy of purposes. And like, why does he do it? He says, because I want to be given the glory. But honestly, why does God send the least likely of people for the most holy purposes? I think it's probably really funny to watch. You know, honestly, (laughs) I was called into ministry when I had scars up my arms and eyeliner down to my cheekbones, you know. And, like, he looked at me, and he was like, this is going to be good. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, let's do this. And this is what God does. He sends very unlikely people to do the most holy things that you've ever seen, which is amazing because he says, when I send people that are unlikely to be sent, all the glory is put on me. You know, nobody's thinking when Lindsay's 17 years old and going through a lot of things, Nobody thought she's doing it in her own power. They knew that the power of God was resting on my shoulders, which is really inspiring because that means that the less equipped that you believe that you are, God thinks that actually that makes you more equipped. That he sends the most unlikely people And so for this man, who they assumed had sinned, God says, no, I have a plan. Watch this. (laughs) But the disciples were not the only ones that were experiencing blindness that day. Of course, the Pharisees were around. And he healed this man on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees, they come in, and they're doing some fact-checking. They're making sure that this actually happened, and they want to prove that this was all a hoax, that this actually didn't happen. And so they pull the man's parents in, and the parents are incredibly intimidated by the Pharisees, and they say, was he actually born blind? Like, let's be real. And the parents kind of throw him under the bus. They say, well, yeah, but I don't know. You ask him. And so they pull the man who was once blind into the ring again. And at this point, let me just tell you this. I love this part of the story because I would respond the same way that the blind man did. And he gets incredibly sarcastic and incredibly smart with them. Let's read this. Verse 24. The second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. (laughs) 
And he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I love this, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> like, he's already sent, okay? He's making disciples already. And they, then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple? We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't know, even know where he comes from. And the man answered, <laughs> now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. Like, how do you like them apples? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's remarkable. You don't even know where he comes from, and yet I can see. And, and this is the kind of blindness that is worse than religious blindness. Because the Pharisees, while the disciples were uh, religiously blind, the Pharisees had willful blindness. Willful blindness. Um, willful blindness is actually a legal term that if there is something that you could know, that you should know, but you choose not to know, the courts decide that you are willfully blind, that you have closed yourself off to the information that you need. Uh, willful blindness is when you see the truth, when you know how to access the truth, but you decide that you won't. And even though the Pharisees can see the before and after difference that Jesus made, they choose to not accept it. Even though they could see it, they should see it, they don't see it. Uh, there was a TED Talk that I watched the other day by a woman named Margaret Heffernan, and the TED Talk is called Willful Blindness, Why We Ignore the Obvious at Our Peril. And in that TED Talk, I would encourage you to go find it, it's wonderful, but she talks about how she researched a woman named Gayla Benefield. And Gayla Benefield lived in Libby, Montana. Now, you may think, like, why would you research some random lady in Libby, Montana? <laughs> and the reason she researched her is because Gayla grew up in Libby, Montana. And when she grew up, she decided that she was going to read meters for the local utility companies. So she went every single day out to different houses, and she would read the meters. And one thing that she noticed that was very shocking to her is that every day when she went out, almost every house that she went to had a middle-aged man home alone on an oxygen tank in the middle of the day. And Gayla said, that's a little weird. <laughs> a few years later, her dad dies at a very early age, three days before he's supposed to collect his pension. And she says, this is very odd. <laughs> And so Gayla starts to do some research, and what she finds is that Libby, Montana sits on a huge vermiculite mine. And vermiculite, you know, that's probably not a mineral that you're very familiar with, at least I wasn't. And vermiculite is something that is actually put into soils so that it would grow plants quicker and bigger. Uh, vermiculite is something that's put in insulation in houses, especially in cold temperature places like Libby, Montana, they would fill the entire roof and the walls with vermiculite. A vermiculite was put in the playground, in the soil. It was put in the football field. It was what insulated the skating rink 
But what they didn't realize about vermiculite is that it's also a very dangerous form of asbestos. And Libby, or, and they found this out in Libby, Montana, and Gala says, I gotta tell everybody, everybody, I gotta tell them, and they'll do something. And so she goes to the town, and she explains that this is why we're getting sick, this is why all, everybody's dying, this is what is happening. And the whole town of Libby, Montana says, yeah, right. And they close her out. They actually get so sick of her talking about it that a group of them got together and they made bumper stickers that said, yes, I'm from Libby, Montana. No, I do not have asbestosis. They got so upset with her. And she was the town freak. Oh, here she comes again. And then one day, a man came down from Seattle and he was studying mines in the area. And she got his ear. And she said, vermiculite's everywhere and it's killing my city. And he, much like everybody else, said, yeah, right, and goes home. Later on that week, she gets a phone call from him, and he says, actually, you're right. You're right, Gala. You need to call the authorities. And she gets a federal agency to come in and screen the entire city. And what they find is that the mortality rate in Libby, Montana, is 80 times higher than anywhere else in the United States. 80 times higher. And no one believed her. They all shut her out. They mocked her. And Margaret Hefferman, in her, in her talk, she goes on to name the two reasons that we choose to be willfully blind. And I think that these two reasons are the same reasons that we choose to be willfully blind to God. Willfully blind to what he's doing in our lives. And the first one is, we choose blindness because we fear. Reality is, is that the Pharisees, their whole lives depended on the Messiah never actually returning. You know, their salaries, their finances, their stature, their careers, they depended on this guy never actually showing up. And when he shows up face to face and heals a man right in front of him, they think, oh crud. And they get scared, what will this mean for my life? And I think that we choose to be blind of these possibilities because they scare the junk out of us. They scare us. If God is calling me to do something, what does that mean? You know, if I really believe that God's calling me to serve, I'm scared that it's gonna, I'm gonna lose my routine in this. You know, if God really has a plan for my life, I'm scared I won't enjoy it. You know, if I really think God empowers somebody that doesn't have a perfect background or a perfect story, I'm scared of what that means about me. You know, if God really has a plan when I don't see it, I'm scared that maybe he doesn't. And we choose to be willfully blind of a healing and miraculous works right in front of us. But in the only reason and the only way that we will conquer this fear is through accepting love, actually perfect love, from God. First John 4, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Perfect love comes into your life and it says, get out, get out, get out! <laughs> All of this fear, I have no room for you. And it says, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. In order for us to not fear, and to not succumb to willful blindness, 
We have to trust in a God that loves us perfectly. A God that isn't looking for the next natural disaster to cause. A God that is not haunting us by all of our failures and our faults. A God that sees us at our worst moments and still sees potential. Now, the second reason she gives is that we choose blindness because we doubt. We doubt that anything will actually change. Yeah, we've talked about this again and again and again, but this is no, nothing's going to actually change in my life. That this book is just kind of like a lucky charm that we have. Uh, that it's something that, that is nice, but it doesn't affect my life. Uh, that if I speak up, if I do something, if I make a change, I will still end up the same place that I was. But the beautiful thing about this is that God honors your obedience. He honors the fact that you choose to follow him. Uh, Margaret, she goes on in her TED Talk, and she says that she visits Libby, Montana. And she goes, and she sat in a clinic for asbestosis, and watched as people used the back door because they didn't want to be seen by their neighbors and admit that they were wrong. As she watched as they loaded up truckloads of the earth out of parks and gardens and yards and hustled in a bunch of clean dirt. She watched as people ripped apart their houses to get the poison out of the walls. And yet still there were people that did not believe it. Listen, we overcome, we overcome fear, we overcome doubt through honest faith. And I wish I could tell you that it's easier, but, but it isn't. Um, we have to admit that we are terrified and, and that there is faith. Uh, Hebrews 11 verse 1, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. We have to rely that we have hope in Jesus' name. That even when we do not see it, he is still working miracles. That even when no, everybody calls us crazy, he is still faithful. And so I want to close this time and invite the worship team up, but I want to ask you, where are you choosing doubt or fear? You know, where are you choosing to instead of having the peace that transcends all understanding, where are you choosing to be fearful? Maybe this is within your relationships. Maybe this is within your finances. Maybe this is within your family. Maybe this is within your future. But where are you choosing fear? Or where are you choosing doubt? Where are you choosing that Nothing will ever change, no matter how much I do. I'd like for you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. And I, I just want you to imagine your life. Imagine your life free from doubt. Free from fear. What stands in between that being a reality? What are you doing? How are you living? 
without fear. What would it take for you to raise your arms and praise no matter what the storm looks like? What would it take to trust that God has a plan and purpose for your life? Because anything that keeps us between that, that keeps us between living in that reality, it needs to be surrendered. We're going to end on a song called Be Thou My Vision. And I picked this song out because no matter what we see in front of us, we have to ask the Lord to give us eyes to see it. The irony of this story is that the disciples were were witnessing a miracle in their midst. They were witnessing a movement of God but they didn't have eyes to see it. Maybe God is moving in your life right now. I'd ask that during this time that you would use this space uh, at your discretion if you want to come to the altar, if you want to stand, if you want to sit and pray, that you do whatever is needed. And that this time would be a time where you commit to the Lord that you alone would be my vision. Father God, we face unimaginable circumstances. Jesus, in our families, God, in our friendships, Lord, in our futures, God, and we admit that we are scared. God, we also admit that at times we doubt. ask for forgiveness for those things. We are sorry that we have doubted. We are sorry that we, are, we have not trusted you. Oh Lord, during this time, we, we want to have a face-to-face conversation. God, where we say that we trust you, no matter what we see right in front of us. Jesus, would you give us eyes to see? that just like Paul, that the scales would fall out of our eyes and we would see clearly what you are about to do.